Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. There we go. Thank you, Alex. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to, to John chapter 6, I'll give you a moment to do that. I also love the fact you guys bring your Bibles. I can't tell you how much joy that brings me. I'm also thankful at this point in the service, we've gotten uh, um, past last week where we already had something happen and, and be interrupted. So praise God. <clears throat> All right, so John chapter 6, verses 60 through 67, it says this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And so this passage that we just read comes at the end of chapter 6, which is what we're going to be looking at over the next two weeks, maybe three, but you know, hopefully the, just the next two weeks here. And, and the reaction, we see the reaction from everybody who, who listened to and witnessed the events of chapter six. What are they doing? They're grumbling. Like, what is this? This doesn't make sense. I don't agree with this. I don't know what's happening here. And then there are those who said, this is a difficult saying. Some translations say, this is a hard saying. This, this is not... I, I don't know how to, what to do with this. I don't know how to feel about this. And then um, Jesus realizing that they are offended and Jesus asking them, were you guys offended by all this? And so we see at this point that many turn away and stop following Jesus. And it's really sad. And so I highlight this at the beginning of this week before we get into, the, into today's sermon and, and next week's sermon just to to understand that we are going to encounter topics and realities that are going to, that are going to be hard, right? I mean, we just got to be faithful to the text. And so if Jesus is saying like, you know, this stuff is hard and it's going to offend you, so then we need to be on our guard as well. Just realize that it's okay if we come across this and we find difficulty with some of what we hear today. It's going to be okay. You know, I, I think next week might be uh, a little worse for some of us, but I don't know. Maybe you, you only take offense at a couple of points or maybe no offense at all. Um, but the bottom line is that it's okay. We need to understand, just as we read, that in the middle of this, that Jesus never apologizes. Right? He's giving us eternal life, the information, the most important information that can be given to anybody. So 
He's like, if you guys are offended by it, fine, but this is it. Like, this, this is the key to life that I'm giving you. It's just telling it like it is to us, like, like we want people to speak to us. Just, just give me the facts. And so I believe as we go through this, our aim should be, um, if we're offended, it's perfectly fine, it's okay to be challenged, but also that, that if Jesus were to ask us, do you still want to follow me? That we would respond like Peter in verses 68 and 69 where he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Jesus is absolutely the Holy One of God, is God. And I believe truly that if you love Jesus, you're going to love John chapter 6. I mean, this is just Jesus, perfect God mode. It's just such a great chapter. And so um, be encouraged that even if you get frustrated or questioned or are challenged, that it's going to be okay, that we're going to get through this. And I believe in the end we'll be even more uh, able to, to follow Christ with all that we have, with our all. And so our sermon today um, is called Jesus Feeds and Defends Part 1. I'm not sure how many parts there's going to be, but this, this I know, this is part one. And so our text today is going to be John chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. And before we begin, uh, begin, I just want to pray for us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I thank you for, for Jesus. I thank you for giving it to us straight, communicating with us your glory, your heart. And I ask for all of us, Lord, if the disciples are offended and if the crowd stops following, perhaps there's stuff in this text that, that, that is not easy to comprehend, Lord. But I ask by the power of your Holy Spirit for hearts and minds here that, that will accept this. And even if challenged, come through it, cling to you even more as their hope, Lord God. And so uh, be honored by, by uh, us worshiping you this morning, Lord. We just thank you for all we have in Christ and for our brothers and sisters around the world clinging to you as all they have, Lord. Amen. And so, oh man, that was an ominous introduction, right? Oh man, everybody, so gloomy, right? And so, but here's the good news. The first thing we're going to look at in chapter 6 is not one of those hard teachings, right? There's nothing to offend you right at the beginning unless you hate free food, in which case I'm offended. So, of course, what I'm talking about, as you probably see in your Bibles, is the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus miraculously feeds thousands of people. And it's interesting, um, just, you know, for your Bible trivia knowledge, that this is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. And so John is the Gospel usually that has something different, right? You have the synoptic Gospels. Usually have a lot of the information is the same, but this is one time where John also is like, you, you need to know this. You need to understand this. So let's read how this goes down, starting in verses 1 through 5. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is in the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him. And so apparently Jesus is doing all sorts of crazy healing. You know, not just the two we read about in chapter 5. That was nothing. It sounds like Jesus is just healing left and right, literally, as he, as he goes up this mountain. 
And so people are not only noticing, but people are following, right? The situation is just escalated, it's hyped up, you know, and they're, and they're following Jesus. And he's at the top of the mountain. I don't, maybe he gets to the top of the mountain. He's like, okay, yeah, I'm here. And turns around and looks, and you can't even see the mountain because it's just covered, covered in people. <clears throat> and it's here where Jesus starts talking to the disciples, right, who are beside him. Like, okay, lesson, guys, how are we going to handle this situation? And so he starts talking to Philip in verses 5 through 7. And Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that the people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And so Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to, to get a little. And so Jesus sees this crowd, and Jesus is on it. He knows what he's going to do. This, this is easy, no problem, but he uses it as an opportunity to test some of the disciples. And so he's asking Philip how much you know, it would be, how much would we need, where can we get it, even if there was a store that sold as much as they would possibly need, Right? And so what Jesus is looking for in Philip is any variation or expression that resembles a confidence in Jesus's power, in his ability to, to sustain, to provide food. And so he could have said like anything like, oh, Jesus, hey, aren't you God? Like, you should just make food out of thin air, right? Or Jesus, hey, why don't you make all the fish jump out of the, out of the sea into everybody's lab? You could rain manna down from heaven, so anything like that, that would have just shown faith in Jesus. But, you know, Philip, I think like a lot of us, like he's, he's stuck in the math part, right? Just like this doesn't add up. You know, if I had, you know, I think it's seven or eight months of salaries worth of money here, if we could find anybody to, that could sell us this much food, it would only be a bite each. And so we'd waste all this money and people would only get a bite um, that's to say, Philip fails this test, right? Philip fails the test, so Jesus turns to Andrew. I don't know what side they were on, but turns to Andrew in verses 8 and 9. So one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And so Andrew uh, approaches it a little, a little differently. He doesn't immediately go to the math. He goes to the inventory all right, what do we got? He's really practical, right? Let, let's see what we, actually, what we actually have on hand. And so what the answer that Jesus wants is, is he wants them to say, hey, take these and multiply them. Or he wants him to throw them in the air and say, God, like, give this to everybody. Like something miraculous again. Um, but Andrew's just caught up in what is apparently like what's directly in front of him. And so his answer is, yeah, I don't think we could divide this by 15,000 people. And so he fails the test because, uh, and, and not to mention, um, these loaves here are barley loaves, and it mentions that specifically, so they're like tiny. They're like little, you know, Hawaiian dinner rolls, like just tiny little things. And these fish, they're not giant tuna, you know, $2 million fish. They're like sardines, right? And so what we have here is a child's meal, Right? This is a little kid's lunch. This is a lunchable, basically. And so that's all they have, a couple of sardines and a couple pieces of bread, like little crackers. And so what does Jesus do next in verses 10 through 13? Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there was a great, now there was a great grass in that place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Uh, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So all the fish... 
Um, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had, been, uh, those who had eaten. And so a couple things to look at here. Um, and you may have heard this before. Um, your Bible says the feeding of 5,000, um, but that was just the men. And so realistically, we're probably looking at 15,000 people plus with the women and children. So enough to go to a Kings game, to go to a hockey game, you know, fill a basketball arena, insane amount of people who have, who have eaten their field, they've eaten as much as they wanted. And then afterwards, it notes that, that the scraps are, are collected, right? The fragments are collected. And so why is that? And I think Matt Carter uh, commentator Matt Carter, who I like, said this, If Jesus cares enough to make sure none of the leftovers are lost, how much more will he make sure none of his people are lost? And so we just see Jesus paying attention to every little detail, making sure nothing goes to waste. But that just brings up the next question, which is, why did Jesus feed them? Why does Jesus feed them? Why this sign? He can do anything. So why do this? Why here? Why now? Why do all, all the Gospels talk about it? And so four reasons real quickly why Jesus fed them. And the first is to show care and compassion. Um, now, I, I didn't write it down, but the, in one of the other Gospels, um, the disciples' reaction, they tell Jesus to send them away, right? It's like, well, you can, here's an option. Tell them to go away, right? And so disciples, not so compassionate right here. Um, but in Matthew, in the, the account of the same event in chapter 15, verses 32, verse 32, Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd, not like you guys, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. So a lot of compassion, right? And so Jesus is doing this teaching. And if you've been to church a lot of Sunday mornings like me, maybe you didn't eat breakfast you know, or maybe the, the pastor's going too long with his sermon and you're hungry and you start to lose focus. Like, I mean, let's be honest, you know, and you have, you know, you have a preacher like me who just works in food to almost every sermon that makes it worse, right? And so Jesus is like, no, I want them to be able to focus. Three days not eating, these people are thinking about food. Everything is looking like food to them. They're not getting the point and they're getting hangry. If you're like me, oh, you know, you get so hangry. We don't want 15, 20,000 hangry people. And so Jesus gives them this food to make sure, you know, as they go home that night that they're not going to faint, right? You don't want 15,000 bodies, you know, collapsed. But he also knows that those same people are coming back the next day, and he's going to drop a hard teaching on them about the bread of life, which is our sermon next week. And so he does this miracle to point to the bread of life. So he's, he's sustaining them and having compassion on them, but he's also setting them up for the main teaching. Second, to show the disciples his power. And remember, this is all a result of a conversation that was happening. Hey, guys, what are we going to do? How am I going to feed everybody? And so poor Andrew, he's ready to steal some kids' lunch, right? That, that, that's the only answer that they had. And so he's showing the disciples his, his power. And I think it's just as much a sign to the disciples as it was to those who are following to believe in his power and to know in a situation, like lean, in, lean into that, like ask, you know, pray about it. Ask God specifically to do something crazy, which they will start doing later in the Bible. 
Uh, third, to show the connection between physical bread and spiritual bread. And I'm not going to say anything about that other than come back next week because that's the second part of this chapter. It's a whole sermon by itself, trust me. Um, we won't regret taking the extra time to look at that next week, but it directly points physical bread to spiritual bread. And then fourth, to show us how he can do much with little. You know, when it comes to serving the Lord, I know for me and I think a lot of us, we look at our lives and we take inventory um, and we find ourselves lacking, whether it's time, whether it's resources or skills. And, and we might say, I only have an hour. I only have $10. You know, I, I only have this one weird skill. And yet God is showing us here, you know, if we invest that into ministry, that, that he's just going to blow it up. Like there's no telling what God can do with our faithfulness and with our resources. So what does the crowd think of this? So Jesus has just hooked them up with some bread and some fish. What does the crowd think? Well, in verse 14, we find out. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And so the crowd is making a connection, man. This crowd, they're, they're, they're getting it. They're getting it. And so they make three connections. The first is the Moses connection, and we will find this all throughout um, John's gospel, but especially in chapter 6. So many connections of how Jesus is better than Moses. Does the things Moses does, but does them better. And so we have Jesus leading this crowd up a mountain and, and bringing you know, bread from heaven for them. And so these people, they're making that connection immediately. Secondly, they're making the Elisha connection, which we find in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 through 44. A man came from Baal Shahalish, bringing the man of God bread for the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, the same bread, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set, um, set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. So they, they see this connection. You know, we've heard this already. People, you know, talking about like, you know, you hear Elisha being brought up. You hear Moses being brought up. So the crowd, they're connecting all this stuff. And then lastly, what we see here specifically is the connection of the, the prophet connection. We find this in Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so the crowd sees this, right? They're shouting this, like this is happening. Like this is happening in our world today. I can't believe what we are experiencing. And so they're getting it, right? And so they see the spiritual significance in, in their physical need being met, and they almost get it right? They almost get it. They are so close, so close, but they go so wrong so quickly in between verses. And so we come to verse 15, which I think is really the first hard, difficult reality that starts messing with people a little bit. <coughs> and it says this, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so what we find here is the fact that Jesus does not want you to drag him into your politics. Jesus does not want you to drag him into your politics, our politics, I should say. 
And so how do you go from almost getting it, from seeing Jesus and embracing him and wanting to embrace Jesus to then seeing him run away from you and run up a whole nother hill after climbing that hill? How do you force Jesus away? And I think this should be a sobering, church for, uh, sobering verse for most of the Western church as we try to drag Jesus into our politics. When the Bible is clear, clear here that that is not what he wants. If politics was his aim, then this is the end game. This is the end of the gospel, right? Ascend the throne, overthrow Rome, and it's game over if that was the goal. But that's not what he came for. In fact, he already rejected a better offer from Satan in the wilderness, right? Satan's like, I'll give you everything. They just want to make him king right here, you know, in Rome. And so Jesus didn't come to be king over a city or a country. He, be, he came as king over everything. He didn't come to overthrow Rome. He came to overthrow sin and death. He didn't come to save Israel alone, right? He came to save the entire world. And he didn't come for a crown of gold. He came for a crown of thorns. And yet, like people here in this text, I see, I see crowds of people, you know, even in my own family, even in my own heart sometimes, trying to put Jesus into my politics, to manipulate my faith into my politics. When we do that, we make him a political puppet that, that pushes away the very people he came to save. You know, so often in politics, you know, we have two sides and one side is against the other. But the problem is, you know, if you have something against this other side, the only thing that's going to change them is Jesus. And so why use Jesus to push them away? It doesn't make sense. And you can see how those two things don't, they don't quite fit together as neatly as I think a lot of people think that they do. I see a lot of people post like, um, like stuff online where you'll have Bible verses you know, next to eagles, right, and the American flag, and, and politicians. And Jesus is not the mascot of your political party, right? Your politics are not the gospel. Our identity is not in politics. It is in Christ alone, first and foremost. It's in, in, in acknowledging that identity that we have in Christ that we, then, that we then enter into the political sphere. Then we enter our society and serve. And I think this is clear in Mark chapter 12, verse 17, where Jesus said to them, the disciples who were with him, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God, that are God's. And, and they marveled at him. And so we have dual citizenship, Right? Clear as day. We belong to the kingdom of God. We are in the kingdom of God. And yet, as we look around the world, Christians, we also have a context. Just like the Ukrainians do and the Canadians do and we are part of Bakersfield. We have a context. And so what this means here is that God does want us to be great citizens. This means serving in the government and politics and in the military, and in the police. Those are all great things, serving our community, you know, as teachers, as, as bus drivers, um, as businessmen and women. These are great things, and we should contribute to our society and pray for our society and our country, so long as they don't interfere with our, with our allegiance to our king and to the kingdom of God. You know, it is the Lord's kingdom that we pray come, 
right? And we say the Lord's Prayer. This is what we want set up on earth. And so don't get me wrong. Let me encourage you after, after saying this. I know it sounds harsh that politics are good. If you like politics or you love politics, I listen to like political shows. I have the, the, the voices that I follow. There's nothing wrong with that. Engaging in politics, awesome. Use our voice, use our vote, pray for our leaders. Yes, absolutely. Those are things that we should absolutely do. We just can't put our hope in them. We just don't know, right? And so use, you know, our, our being citizens of the kingdom to inform our politics. You know, serve in our country so that our king gets the glory. You know, if we're good citizens and if we're involved in politics the right way, we're going to have peace, right? And, and we're going to transform this kingdom into God's kingdom, and that is our aim. And so there is a direct link, right, between our faith and our politics. But it is not the same. It is absolutely not the same. You know, this may be hard to hear. And I could tell you people in my family would throw stuff at me right now. But Jesus is not American. Right? He's as American as he is Russian. And so he's neither. And so, yes, there's going to be Americans in heaven. That's going to be awesome, right? And so in Revelation 7, 9, it says this. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And so we have all the nations here represented. And the Americans are not wearing red, white, and blue. What color are they wearing? White, right? Everybody were washed pure by the blood of Christ. And so, yes, God acknowledges nations, right? We see that. We are all in Christ. And, and Jesus has come for the nations, right? Not just to be put on the throne here. He's come for all the nations. And we should be carrying his name into all the nations of the earth. And yet we are being distracted, like we're being straight up brainwashed, and I, including me, including me, to waste so much time, so much time and energy on things that don't matter, so much time and energy on resources talking about the effectiveness of masks and mandates when we really have no idea. I know we're all experts, but we're really not. What we should be talking about is the effectiveness of the cross, right? That's what we know the effectiveness of. And that's what we should be pointing people to. What is de deadlier, COVID or sin? And what are we focusing on? We have the answer to sin. You see what I'm saying? The world's priorities are not our priorities. We do not need propaganda. We have prayer, we have the cross, and we have Jesus. And so Jesus does not want to be dragged into your politics. By doing so, we offend him and we make a mockery of him. It pushes people away from Jesus instead of drawing them near. It uses Jesus as a battling ram to run over the very people that he's trying to save. Jesus is so much more nuanced than that. Right? Love our enemies. We can vote against them and still love them. Right? We can still point them to Jesus because that's all that's going to change them anyway, not yelling at them. So let your faith inform your politics and empower your politics. 
to bring him glory and expand his kingdom. And don't use him as a political puppet. I told you, it's going to be right, a little, little bit challenging. And so I want to go through the next, the next passage this morning, which is verses um, 16 through 20. Just moving on. Um, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. Um, we know it's like three or four in the morning. And Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, it is I, do not be afraid. And there's one more detail John doesn't mention, so I want to look at Matthew chapter 14, verses 22, talking about the same event, different perspective. Um, That's before all this happens. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And so this is an important detail, I think, that we don't find in John's account, is that this whole thing is Jesus' idea, right? They are following Jesus' instructions, because nobody in their right mind is going to go out into the sea at this time of day. Um, Specifically, this sea. This is not historically the sea you want to go to. You You don't do that. And yet they are following the instructions of Jesus, which means entering a perilous situation. And so when the wind becomes difficult in the middle of the night or like three, three, four in the morning and they're looking for Jesus and they find him and they freak out just like any of us would freak out you know, if we saw somebody come to us in the dark, especially in the middle of the night, especially in the middle of a sea. And so being freaked out here is completely reasonable. No judgment on you disciples. We would, we would freak out as well. And so Jesus' response to them I think is so important where he says, it is I do not be afraid. And so in the Greek, what we find here is the expression ego eimi, which I didn't make a slide for, but ego eimi. And so literally what that means, if you translate that right spot on as it says, it's not it is I, but it is I am, I am. And so this is huge. Because this is the first of the I am sayings. And so as we go through the Gospel of John, we're going to find seven of them. That's what everybody will say. There's seven I am sayings, right? And so next week we're going to see that that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And so, But I am one of the people who will say, no, there's actually eight I am sayings because this is the same words that are used here. And so I think the first I am saying is Jesus saying, don't be afraid, Right? Like, I'm going to drop some serious I am knowledge for you guys, but before, just know that you don't need to be afraid of this. Again, this harkens back to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, 14, where God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has, has sent me to you. And so Jesus is saying, God is here. Like, I am who I am is here do not be afraid. Do not be afraid in this very you should be afraid situation. You know, and there's another parallel here to Moses as well. If you remember the crossing of the Red Sea, right? So people can get across, right? The middle of the sea, the wind comes and Israel walks on dry ground to get to the other side. As we're here, Jesus being greater, he doesn't even part the sea. He just walks right on top of it. 
like nothing. And then in verse 21, he goes a little further. <clears throat> See if you guys have ever caught this. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. Okay, it's Jesus, come on. And immediately, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So they didn't have to cross the sea. So, you know, if you're hanging out with us guys Friday night, you know that what happens here is what's, what we call teleportation. Like instantly. It's like, what? Like walking on the sea wasn't enough? Like, it's like, okay, I'm here. Okay, now we're at the shore, right? And they were miles out, it said. I mean, that's why it tells you. They've been, they're, they're not close. They're not close to the land. That's why that little detail is there. And so what we can see, what's inferred here, is that Jesus, again, does not need the crown of the people, does not need to be the king, you know, of Capernaum or Judea, but he's king over everything, right? Nature, like, like the laws of nature, time, reality, all bow before him, serve him. And so why would he stop to be crowned of a, 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 a group of people when he's the king over everything already? And this is something we should remember when Jesus calls us or directs us into the storms of life. He knows what is going on 100%. Nothing, nothing is surprising him or freaking him out. He brings us into the storm so that we will seek him. Right? Directs us into the storm, not out of it, not away from it, but calls us into the hard situation. You know, it's in those moments in the storms of life where Jesus becomes the most real to us. I can say that from experience, and maybe you can too, that the closest you felt to God, the most intimate you were with Jesus was in the most difficult situation that you've ever had to deal with. Again, just look up videos of Christians in Ukraine praying and singing as their city is being bombed. You know, one of my favorite quotes by, by Richard Sibbs and bruised reed is, pain is God's loudspeaker. Pain is God's loudspeaker. And you'll hear me, hear me say that all the time. If something's happening, man, like, ask yourself, what's going on? Like, how can I lean into God in this, in this situation? Find strength in Christ in the moments of despair. It is, you know, I don't know who, who said this originally, but when Christ is all we have, that's when we realize that he is all that we need. And so as we enter a season in this country where it is not, unless something drastic happens, it's not going to go well for us. We're not only going to not be cool, and we're probably not, not, we're not cool already, but we're going to be frowned upon, harassed, fired, fined, and before we know it, imprisoned. And so we see hints of this to come already. You know, it's important to know our context. We're not in the Ukraine, we're not in Canada, but we are in our own context and I do remember vividly in the last two years being told that we couldn't meet together, right? We can go to McDonald's, we can go to Walmart, and we can go buy liquor, but we can't meet together to sing songs to Jesus. And so that, that is absolutely our context. When we see our neighbors to the north being fined and imprisoned, you know, we have an idea of, of what's to come when they're told what they can and can't preach on. And so following Jesus is difficult, and he faithfully says so, right? And so he asked if we want to follow him. You know, he tells us to count the cost. Like, do you want to follow me? Do you really want to follow me? Because, you know, it, it's not like some televangelist would say, right? You're not going to become rich. You're not going to have your best life. That's not what it's about. In fact, he will often call you into the storm after faith, not out of it. 
And yet he doesn't apologize. He just warns us and offers his comfort. The comfort that he will be there with us every step of the way. Right? He's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. But he will guide us through this storm. He will take us to the other side. Whatever that looks like, whether the problem we're going through, he gets us to the other side of it. Or maybe even some like in Ukraine who, who are going to lose their life and have lost their life already. But he still successfully brought them to the other side. You see, where Moses failed you know, so miserably is that he never got Israel into the promised land, right? Moses never brought anyone into the promised land. And yet with Jesus, he does. He brings us into the promised land. He brings us into himself, right? And he brings us into eternity with him. So no matter what's happening in life, how hard it is, we know we get there. You know, I don't, I'm not saying it's going to be teleportation, but I'm telling you that Jesus is going to be there with you and you will get to the other side at some point. And what you're going through is with the intent of bringing him closer to you. And so Jesus, it's a hard saying, but he will lead us into the storms and discomfort of life, not away from or out of it, so that we'll find our comfort in him. So let us trust, trust in the Lord with the little bit that we have, that he's going to do much with it. And let us invest in his kingdom with all that we have, even with our politics, even with our very lives if we have to. Because as Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Let me pray for us, church. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.